Welcome to Better by Great Place to Work, the podcast that helps companies become a great place to work for all because it's better for people, better for business, and better for the world. I'm Christopher Tkachuk, the Chief Content Officer at Great Place to Work. Each week, we meet with great leaders who have helped their companies become better workplaces by focusing on their best asset, their people, who in turn help their organizations become more successful. Support for Better comes from Genentech, a global leader in biotech and medicine and continues to be a longtime winner on Fortune's annual list of the 100 best companies to work for. Welcome to Better by Great Place to Work. We're here today at the Great Place to Work for All Summit 2019 in San Francisco. I'm being joined today by the fabulous and former colleague and friend of mine, Ellen McGirt, senior editor at Fortune, who also writes the daily Race Ahead column about diversity and inclusion. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. It's great to see you. It's great to see you. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking mostly about the topics that you cover every day in Race Ahead. Uh, And for our listeners, uh, the first thing you should do if you want to pause this podcast right now, go on to fortune.com. Subscribe to Race Ahead because it's the most important thing you can read every single day. I love you for saying that. I will wait until you get back, listener. (laughs) Or you can just wait until the end of the podcast. But you should definitely uh, have it in your daily reading list. So, Ellen, um, you know, we're today is uh, the day of this recording is on February 28th, the final day of Black History Month. Which uh, I think everybody can pretty much agree has been a bit of a disaster this year. It has been a rough 28 days. Yeah. What is for you the most glaring oversight or the glaring uh, issue that uh, has been in the news quite a bit uh, around around just black identity, African-American identity in this country? Listener, you may not have heard me roll my eyes as I went through the (laughs) days of the month, but um, I absolutely did. I think... This has been such a problematic couple of years when it terms of how we talk about race in general and the experience of people of color in this country. But this past month seems to have just brought out the worst in everybody. And as I was writing my column today and sort of ticking through this list, there's blackface, there was more blackface, there was more blackface. Yesterday at the Michael Cohen testimony at a congressional hearing, a very weird conversation broke out about who was racist and who wasn't racist. I missed that conversation. So if you want to highlight some of it, because I've been here at the summit and I haven't had a chance to see the, the any of the video, but you know, I really I hate to burst your happy bubble because the this summit in particular is one of the greatest places to be, let alone the, one of the greatest places to work. But out there in the rest of the world, it's just been a storm and a half. It was a Mark Meadows, Representative Mark Meadows, incensed by Michael D. Cohen's characterization of the current president as a racist, and he ticked through a couple of powerful examples, that he brings in the regional director for HUD in New York, who happens to be black and also happened to work for the Trump organization before she became an appointee as, a part, as an event planner as proof that the president is not, in fact, a racist, and she stood silently behind him in just silent tribute to the fact that she likes the president and she would never work for anybody who was a racist. So immediately... So one person can can justify that whether or not, or judge whether or not somebody is or is not racist. It's all canceled. It's all fine. Mar- and, and Mr. Meadows is getting madder and madder and madder, and people, um, uh, other representatives are getting upset. Like, even the fact that you you bring this woman as testimony is a racist act. Everyone's upset. Uh, uh, Chairman Elijah Cummings. 
I did watch that. Oh my lord! The closing, the closing argument. A, a very emotional moment. Oh, that's a beautiful moment. A very emotional, yeah. very beautiful it's moment. It's an important moment in American history too. It is. It is. But we ended up having a long national and ineffective conversation about what racism actually was. Everyone got madder and madder and madder, including Chairman Cummings, who is friends with Mr. Meadows and was not prepared to walk that, to have that very complicated talk about how you could have affection for and work effectively with someone who also holds some problematic ideas. It just was awful. So beyond the what's happening in Washington right now mm-hmm. uh, and the, uh, the issues that we've had with so many politicians being exposed for racist behavior in the past, what other things have happened this past month that have brought you down? You know... <sighs> Is there anything? Yeah, I, I think I'm taking back through some of the real low points of the last three years. I've been writing the column and obviously police shootings were... Among them, it was so disturbing to people. People were so afraid and angry and grieving. So much of what happened in the last month felt like our ability to understand how racism functions and how deeply embedded it is in our culture alienated us from each other in ways that I, that I didn't think could actually become more profound. As people struggled to explain why they didn't even remember a yearbook picture or something they edited or that was problematic, why that never even occurred to them at the time, unprepared to have even a simple apology or just a debrief that went to go well. I also I always try to forget all of my mistakes. I know. But at least I own them. Yes, at least you knew they were problematic. I'm sure that's true. And I think for a country that's already on edge, and particularly in the workforce where we spend so much of our time, it felt like a further betrayal, is that now we're just comfortable saying the thing, or now it's just we're going to dismiss the thing like it didn't really matter. And the, what I, the feedback I get from my readers is, well, now I feel like this person was always this way. And you revisit this relationship and, and that you have, and you revisit your future. Will you ever be seen for your, for your true potential, or is there just something, something else that's ugly going to be? that's going to come up in a conversation, in a, re- in a performance review, in a, will you get your idea financed, you know, whatever it is that you need to do in the workplace. So uh, diversity and inclusion is such an important part of the daily conversation for so many companies, at least if it's not, it should be. What have you seen in terms of even in the past year or the past three years since you started writing Race Ahead on a daily basis, what have you been seeing as a trending theme around DNI? Uh, is there? Does it seem like there is a, a huge uptick in interest, or is it not enough just yet? I don't think we're, we're quite there yet, because I still think we're struggling to define the very terms, and particularly in a society that is so based in a white supremacist history and past, and all of the structures that go along with that, including education and access to finance and all the things that make a life and that support an executive track and executive track position, we're just having trouble talking about it. So there are days where I feel more hopeful than others, and you know, anytime I'm in the great place to work universe, I'm feeling very hopeful. Because this is where I see human beings like you and me being willing to do the tender, vulnerable work of actually talking to each other about what it's like to be the other person. And for all the strategies and tactics and, you know, meetings and trainings and anti-bias software that people are using, the truth is it's the human you and me talking part that is the central 
kernel of, of leadership anyway, but that's where we're going to make the difference. And um, when I'm here, I see people doing that. And in the rest of my reporting life, I see people still nervous about it, particularly if they're a majority culture, however you define that. In your experience of interviewing so many different um, leaders at companies in corporate America, do any of them stand out to you as DNI being just lip service where they know their numbers are not good? They don't have the right distribution, even if they are looking only at race or if they're only looking at gender, but yet they say they're, they're making an effort. I mean, case in point, look at the tech industry. Yeah, they keep saying over and over again, you know, we are really trying to focus on this, but not much has changed over the past few years. Not much has changed at all. So they are, they are only one of um, a variety of sectors who seem to be spinning their wheels. And one of the reasons why we don't know exactly what's happening is because so many companies refuse to publish their demographic numbers. And I know that you agonized over this with lots of other of your with brothers Google and sisters. especially. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, and it was because of us publishing it at Fortune. Yes. Then we had to fight with them for a little bit, but eventually we published it, and then they began publishing it themselves. That's right. They got right ahead of it, and so which was a very smart thing to do. And that did, in fact, create um, a ripple effect that, that's made a big difference. But we've been foying um, at various times in our, our, our work lives at, at Fortune to get more of this, this data which the government requires, but people don't have to make public. I think it was at was it Palantir. There's there's several technology and you know other mm-hmm. types of companies mm-hmm. who are now saying it's protected because it's a trade secret because like literally three black people work there, and so if they <laughs> like, <laughs> like I can't look for this on LinkedIn, right? But it would become some, right. exposed some sort of secret, right, exactly. and they'd be poached. They poached by the competition, right? Yeah. So publish more data is always going to be better for something like this, and I think what media people and reporters and analysts need to understand is that this kind of change takes time. But the more you report your numbers and the more report you report on the efficacy of the steps you're taking, the better the entire ecosystem is going to be. But the tech the tech industry remains a huge disappointment, but nobody's diversity numbers were good. No. Nobody's. No, you're right. There was one company recently that stood out to me, and I'm forgetting what it is, but if I think of it, I'll mention it. You know who was here. You know who was here that you should you should interview um, Heather Brunner from uh, WP Engine. Oh, I don't know her. She's got. I think they're about two hundred million in revenue now, which is um, a nice, a nice growing, medium sized business, like mm-hmm. past startup and pre IP, well pre IPO. Mm-hmm. But she has absolutely baked diversity and thinking in beyond gender into the company. I think they're. I'm, not, I'm going to get her numbers wrong. Their leadership is 65% women. Thir- they're 35% people of color. have some sort of eth- ethnic makeup. And she immediately began to um, recruit people who were familiar with technology, familiar with their product um, in particular, whether or not they had college degrees, whether they, or not they had um, any kind of minor brushes with the law or in, in their, anything that would be a deal breaker for anybody that was that was applying for a job anyplace else and it's just been this rich robust growing um, tech technology company and she calls you know nonsense there are people out there you're just not recruiting them and they're talented oh interesting you know I just because I'm thinking of it right now I wrote a story for our, the great place to work site uh, that was published yesterday sort of announcing this new research report from Accenture in which it reveals that it will reach gender parity within its management team, all of its managers, not just the top executives, by next year, and that they'll have gender parity for the entire organization by 2025. 
and that's well ahead of, of, of their schedule. Yeah. This is this is Ellen Shook wrote that report, right? Um, I think she's one of the co-authors of it. Yeah. I, a, I quote her in the story. She's so. a treasure, right? Like yeah. she's just everything to she me. Is. And well done. Right? Yeah, right? Well done. Right. But to see a company of that size, one of the world's l- largest global professional services firms, you know, make that huge step forward so quickly, yep. I think it's just going to be uh, one of the first of many, you know, just because there's so much competition in that industry, because that industry keeps getting smaller, right? I know. The consolidation is, is really profound, and their clients are asking for this level of thinking because it's a it's a sort of it's a it's a proxy for their own inability to reach those kinds of mm-hmm. um, benchmarks as quickly as they would like. So the ripple effect there, you know, Accenture has an entire entertainment practice. The ripple effect in those industries is going to be amazing in healthcare. Right. You know, like, it's just fantastic. This podcast is brought to you by Genentech a biotechnology company dedicated to the rigorous pursuit of science and the discovery and development of breakthrough medicines for people with serious diseases. Recognized as one of Fortune's 100 best companies to work for for more than two decades, Genentech cultivates an environment where scientific innovation thrives and where each person feels valued, included, and able to contribute their best for patients. Learn more at gene.com. So... What are the, some of the the more one of some of your more favorite stories, the stories that you've been working on as part of the Race Ahead column that you've published over the past few years? You know, I think I'm looking back now. It's um, the fir- I think it's got to be the first one because it was the thing that brought me back to Fortune. Why there's a lack of uh, yes. black executives in corporate America? And it was so it was so wonderful. You, you, um, it was a fantastic story. Thank you. And what we'll do on the on the website for the podcast is we'll provide links to both this story, as well as the link to the Race Ahead site, so you can subscribe. Yay! Thank you. But I had I had been at a competitor, fast company, for seven years, and I had taken a break to work on a book on first-time leaders. It's sort of my weird nerd leadership obsession with two terrific researchers, Rich Wellens and, and Tacey Byam, who's the CEO of DDI, a company I love. And I got a DM on Twitter from from Cliff Leaf, editor-in-chief. Mm. And and your boss. And and my boss, and a beacon, and a friend, like, like a really... Like the, a blessing for a writer, asking me if I would be interested in writing a story. Crazy idea, you know. How it's like I know this is a little crazy, but would you be interested in writing a story about why there's no black man in executive ranks in the, among the Fortune 500? And I mean, by no, I mean very, not few. Near, very few, not nearly enough. And as you well know, media in general has not done a great job covering race and really tackling some of the nuanced issues around race and underrepresentation. Fortune is no different in that way. And the list that we publish and the da- the data that we present to the world reflects a bias in business as well. I mean, it's just, it lives there. It's a mirror for it. And we're reporting the facts. Yes. Right? Yes. As journalists. Yes. And it's just, it's in the numbers. It's right there. So I thought, yeah, you know, why not? Um, and we set out together on on a plan. And, I, and my, my view is that we just can't have studies and, and just analyst talking points. We really have to look at the talent pipeline from birth to C-suite and establish where we're losing people along the way because this is the only way you can tell a true story of a very specific demographic. And, you know, Cliff signed off right away. And what ended up happening, it was just this 
like almost magical reporting experience where I'm talking to people who would never ordinarily be included in a fortune story before. People who worked in corporate America, people who didn't, people, young men who would, from, from nearby Ferguson actually, who were entrepreneurial and interesting and vibrant and who would never consider corporate America for a variety, for all the reasons that we know that they would never feel welcome there. Mm-hmm. And it ended up being exactly what I wanted it to be, you know, mm-hmm. from where, where we're losing kids when they are singled out disproportionately for punishment in grade school, where they are considered to be older and more dangerous than they actually are by the adults who are supposed to be taking care of them, where they are on, on the school-to-prison pipeline. We talked about food deserts. We talked about underrepresentation in, in hiring pools, and we talked about how unwelcome people feel. We used, unfortunately, Twitter as an example because they were very much in the news as a way of not having enough representation in technology to talk about what it was like to be a person who represented what it was like to be black in an organization that wasn't prepared to amplify their advice or even think meaningfully about what they were saying. So where it was um, a difficult story to write and very emotional, I even talked to Chuck D from Public Enemy, who I think originally thought I was trying to sell him a subscription. (laughs) Could not understand why I was talking to him. Um, but the poetry of the black male experience and the and the pain, which this was this would have been, gosh, this was after Trayvon, and before the summer of July 2016. Yeah, it was. I remember it being in 2016. Yeah, it was earlier than the the police shootings that were to come, which ended up being another transformational moment for people who for companies who wanted to weigh in. So, and then a couple of years later, using a similar model, we did that one was called Leading While Black, and then a couple of years later, we did the Black Ceiling, which was. Um, African-American and black women's experience or Caribbean-American women's experience in corporate life, which is similar but very different at the same time. And just the reason why those two stories mean so much is because it changed my relationship with my audience, you know, the kinds of gratitude. And when someone feels seen, by, especially by a brand as, as important and as humane as Fortune is when, it, when we interact with the business world, it was just um, it was just a wonderful thing to be able to bring to the marketplace as a reporter. And I, I, I loved yeah. everybody who contributed. They're both fantastic stories, in which I said earlier, and I'll say it again, we're going to put them on our site, the link to them, so that our readers and listeners can, can read them too. You know, I wanted to ask you a bit about the corporate social responsibility around some of the tragic events that have happened over the past few years. We have the Pulse shooting in Orlando. We have the Black Lives Matter movement, which has sprung up out of all of the massacring of... of black men by white police officers in this country, which is not ending. We have school shootings pretty much almost every day, if not every week. And there's this, and you mentioned it earlier, there's this need to have the conversation in where companies can then begin to understand the experience that their employees are going through. In your interviewing and writing of stories uh, and talking to so many different people over the past three years, uh, which companies are the best at listening to employees? around these types of events? You know, that's a a wonderful question. And I know guns as an issue specifically is a challenging one because it feels just so political. So I was very moved by Dick's Sporting Goods, for example, removing some of their guns from their inventory and talking about it quite publicly. And I think it was Levi Strauss as well, Chip Berg also. I think I remember reading that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just impassioned stances that people were prepared to defend. You don't see that very often for all kinds of reasons that I, I do have some sympathy for, but I was very moved by that from a gun, from specifically from that issue point of view. 
But for me, this begins and ends with PwC. You know, I, I've been, as I joke, I've been up in PwC's business for the last three years for a couple of reasons. One is because the, their, their brand new chairman, Tim Ryan, started his 100 days as chairman right at the same week that in that hot July summer um, where there was it, was, it was Dallas and then there was Minneapolis mm-hmm. and uh, Baton Rouge. Was Baton Rouge? Yeah, it was, when was Missouri? Uh, that was earlier. Was it earlier? Yeah, that, but it just seemed like it was just There's so many of them I can't keep track of the cr- no, uh, I know. Cr- chronology. Yeah. You know, actually at some point I had all the, the victims on like names on my wall and it just kept adding to it and I had to I had to take them down and put them in another place because it was just becoming too much like the, like a war memorial kind of thing. But Tim Ryan made the incredibly bold decision to open up to all of the employees a chance to have a candid conversation about what was happening in the world because the insanity of having all this stuff happening and expecting people to put that uh, put those those worries at the door and come in and do their work was just was just nuts, but nobody had thought of it that way before. You know, your job is to shake it off and give me your best and then go home and hope that your 18-year-old son gets home okay. Mm-hmm. You know, all these other things. And there were very little guidelines to it. They, they, they just, he just called these meetings and people just shared. And for whatever reason, their employees of, of color, their black employees felt comfortable enough to really talk about what, it, what they were afraid of, what they were burdened by and where they didn't feel seen at work. And everyone not only survived in their careers, they have they have thrived. They formalized that series of conversations over the years. And not only that, with the CEO for Action and Diversity, mm-hmm. they've really shared what they've learned about what's working and every aspect of um, diversity and inclusion and given people who are would ordinarily be afraid, like other CEOs, a forum to talk about where they felt vulnerable, where they were they were afraid they were going to make a mistake, and where they needed to be investing their resources and their time. Can you, just because I want to work this in, just sort of just describe what the CEO action for diversity and inclusion is in sort of one line? So the, so the CEO action for diversity and inclusion started out as a pledge. Will you, as a leader of your company, do the best you can and set some targets for changing the, the ratio of uh, diversity um, in your company? And as part of it, it was a, a, a pledge to post targets, post best practices, and then participate in actual convenings that are difficult. I've, I've been to some on background. I mean, they're, they're really rolling up their sleeves and, and doing the work. Anybody who ever thinks that CEOs don't work hard like I used to until I started interviewing them is going to be very, very impressed. Um, now, Tim Ryan, who founded this, um, this, this mission, this action, appeared at the Great Place to Work Summit in 2018. Yeah. And you can find video of his of his session on our website. He and he's the real. He took tremendous risks because, as you can imagine, this doesn't. When you're a majority culture person, this feels like something that's extra and nice to have, and something good to have in your annual report. It doesn't feel like a priority, and he's made sure that it is absolutely a priority. And in a partnership, in particular, where leaders um, are free to. Uh, you know, just do business the way they want to do business. He was asking everyone to do things differently and to think about how they've recruited and to hit certain targets and to have diverse slates of candidates, which is not something that everyone always thinks about. Mm-hmm. Have diverse slates of interviewers, which makes even a bigger difference. And it felt like he was up in everybody's business, I'm sure of it. And little by little, I think they're seeing the kind of results that they that they want to see. And they're, they're, what I love most about it is that it inspires courage in other leaders. Like, we did this. You can do this too. Here's how to hold a meeting of 
when you want to talk about something difficult. And it transforms people. It's the same experience I had with the uh, Leading Wild Black story. If you actually listen to somebody about what their life is like, it changes your relationship. So I, uh, I give them a tremendous amount of credit, and I'm hoping that the ripple effects will continue. I also wanted to bring up this issue that we still don't have anti-discrimination legislation or laws that include LGBTQ people in this country. It's an ongoing issue. There are how many states now, 27 still, that where if you identify as LGBTQ, uh, an employer can fire you for that very reason. It's an abomination. I'm so glad you brought this up. I'm so glad you brought this up, and I'm so glad that occasionally we're seeing bursts of activism around this. You know, the bathroom bill is the is the best example. I would think, what was that, 2017 was like the year of open letters from corporations. It's yeah. like they were just like one issue after another. Which is a great thing. I appreciated it. I appreciated it tremendously. And that has been a learning curve. That we, we When they do that, we get to learn. We get to learn about um, what issues people are actually facing, why being able to use the bathroom of your of your choice matters to people, how it matters to their children. But um, the, did you did you read the story about the Methodist Church, United Methodist Church? I did. Church? Oh my, it's heartbreaking. Oh my Lord, no pun intended. It, it, it seemed like it came from nowhere. So can you explain to the listeners yes. what happened? Yeah, I report, don't know the story. I reported on the other day, the United Methodist Church in this particular um, organization has been around since 1965. It's, it, it had been a, a merger of two other Protestant um, organizations, had become increasingly progressive in certain, um, and certainly in certain of their churches, and had been having a conversation for quite a while about welcoming LGBT. LGBTQ um, parishioners fully, and um, even having LGBTQ uh, uh, clergy, which I think is really important. And the the issue became even more energized after the Supreme Court affirmed um, same-sex marriage as a constitutional civil right. That was a very exciting, beautiful moment. I, I, I remember back at that moment, it was like my whole Twitter feed just got engaged at the same time, just this joyous, just joyous event. Well, if you had been in the office at, I think it was at Fortune, it yeah. was 2017? No. 15, I'm right? sorry, 2015, yeah, yeah. If you had been in the opposite fortune at the time, you would have heard me screaming down the hall. Because <laughs> that's what, that's what oh, happened. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah, it was a great. And people came out of their offices and they said, what's going on? It's so, like, what? I have rights. Yeah. I know. Right? And so the, the Methodist Church had been a leader in having these conversations. And they're difficult. And I don't pretend to understand them. There are, there are scriptural barriers to... I don't pretend to understand. I'm just going to leave that there. So the debate was between a progressive plan which would allow same-sex marriage, it allowed individual churches and denominations to to make the decision for themselves, which would have been a, a welcoming choice for anybody who wanted to to um, welcome, uh, you know, gay clergy, same-sex marriages, all all of the above, and. Um, the traditional plan, which was to continue to to ban homosexuality um, based on for scriptural reasons, and I think everybody expected the more progressive choice. And it came. It, the The meeting was in St. Louis. It was a three day, very emotional meeting, and um, that was not what was voted. And it was it was the opposite cry. Like you could feel like the opposite cry around the world. Like, and um, I I covered it in the in my newsletter, and I posted to some of the responses, and including one short video from a young um, gay pastor, pastoral student whose name just went out of my head that gave his impassioned testimony right before the vote and it just, I think of his voice you know, becoming you know, raw and more emotional 
as he you know begged for the idea that that they were stronger together as opposed to being cast out of his own church and where, where he grew up it just it just broke my heart and it, it reminded me you know you know forget the trash black history month it seemed like an affirmation of of a of an idea that is not where we want to end up as a society and that somehow in the last couple of years you know for all of the divisive rhetoric and the embrace of hate speech and the concepts behind them that we're free but people who not who were not free before to um, exclude other people feel justified in doing so. And why are we going down this path, do you think? You know, I, it is, I wake up at 3 a.m. and I think, Chris is going to ask me why. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know. I'm sorry to keep you awake at night. My philosophical mind thinks that we are on a, a, a journey that anybody who is being awakened is going to go through, you know, maybe it's sort of a, a different set of five stages of grief. The idea that our society has been structured for so long to to bet to the benefit of a certain type of majority culture person, and you can you, all the elements are there. You're they're 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 white, they're male, they're Judeo-Christian, they're able-bodied, they're tall, you know, you know, they have you know hair, whatever whatever that picture, you know, every CEO is named Jim for a reason, you know, right, and has the same haircut, right, right. And um, that this is what power looks like, this is what authority looks like. When that is being questioned, it feels like a takeaway. And anybody who benefited from that system or believed in it or thought it was ordained is going to feel um, threatened. I do want to call out the work that Mark Benioff has done, for, I mean, for many different things that he's been doing for bettering the world through his business and through his uh, social awareness and activism. Uh, only because he is the loudest voice that I can think of who has been beating the drum around having anti-discrimination policies. You're right. You know, he is truly a leader for other business leaders. You're absolutely so, right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And he right. is number two on Fortune's list of the 100 best companies to work for. His, you know, uh, Salesforce, it's not he. Not yeah, not. no, no, for, and for, for a reason. He takes real risks, and the, the company is prospering, which is... Um, a sign that sometimes that taking risks really, really does make a difference. That, yeah. that God, Lord knows, they're energized. I think it was Tony Prophet, their incredible chief equality officer, who yeah. I get to run into a lot on the conference circuit, asked me personally to make sure I identified my pronouns in my email sign-off. I was like, I thank you for prompting me. I would not, and I, and I did it. And it really, these little things that they they do things small and large. You know, they're writing the letters. They're making. Mark is making the the pronouncements. He's pushing. He's pushing to end homelessness. Like he really says the big things, but it's also the small things. Another uh, activist CEO, if you want to call him that, Howard Schultz. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> I, I'm actually surprised a bit by the reaction, uh, only because I've you know interviewed him numerous times over the years, have written about him, and I think he's actually a really good guy. Me too. He's very progressive. He is. Uh, it's sort of where I think this country needs to go. Yep. But there's this there's this fear of of uh, having another billionaire as president, and people are not looking beyond that. Do you think it's fair? You know, it's a good question. I think it's complicated, um, which I'm I don't mean to dodge your question at all. We are so raw and so tender now from all of this true craziness that has come out of the White House that. Um, and I'm saying this, I, I don't know if you're, if you're going to timestamp this, I, I'm saying this from having been up at 3 a.m. watching the, the you know, Air Force One flee North Korea. <laughs> so 
And I'm not saying, you know, forget what he says about, you know, whoever he says or whatever he's done or whoever he's paid off. It's just like, oh my lord, we're all going to die in a fireball. This is just terrible. I, last time when I was watching it, I was like, oh, we're just about on the precipice of beginning World War III. This is, yeah, just where is it happening? And what are we not talking about? So just as a leader, we're in trouble here. So we are a little raw about elections. There's a lot of questions we don't have about gerrymandering, answers for gerrymandering and interference in elections. So it feels, it's hard to know what to be afraid of. And I have interviewed Howard Schultz many times. I've written about him many times. I've seen him talk to people um, at get out the vote rallies. I Sometimes I write my column at the Starbucks in Ferguson which is real and it's a it does interesting things for the community and all and always has. So I also think that he seemed unprepared for the nuanced um, language that he was going to need to 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 have at his fingertips to be fluent in to talk about some of the big issues of the day. Mm, and I think it was also, I think it was also premature for him to have a town hall when he had no specifics. And he didn't have any policies yeah, planned out yet. Yeah. yeah. So this was this. It, it wasn't a listening tour. It wasn't. He didn't do all the things that he knew, that I know that he knows to do, and he seemed a little bit prickly when people said, you know, please don't say, you don't see color. I need you to see us, because I also know that he does see color. You know that that incident at the Philadelphia store. Mm-hmm. They got on a plane. Yeah. Then they closed damage the, control. Yes, and they closed the store for a training one day, so we all had to. They sit closed there, every store. All of them, and we all had to wait for our coffee while they sorted it out. And I was perfectly happy to wait. Yeah, I was too. So I think it was not the rollout I would have liked, but I'm sure that he will find a way to contribute to the conversation another way. Good point. God, there's so many other things I want to ask you, but we are running out of time. Oh my gosh, we should. You should have like um. You'll be on season two. You have a band in a bar. I know. As long as we don't have to sing or dance, I guess. (laughs) Chris, I love what you've done with the place. I'm so glad you're here. You've landed here and you have this important role. I I have great decorators. What can I say? (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Ellen. This has been such a joy. We miss you at Fortune, but we love the the work that you're doing here. Thank you. I appreciate that. We really respect everybody at Great Place to Work respects the work that you are doing. So it's a mutual admiration society all around. I'm so glad. See you next year, baby. Yep. Thank you. You've been listening to Better by Great Place to Work, the podcast that helps everyone create better workplaces because it's better for people, better for business, and better for the world. Better is generously sponsored by Genentech, a global leader in biotech and medicine that ranks among the world's best employers. Tell us about your great workplace experiences by finding us on social media. We can be reached on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram at greatplacetowork underscore US. Also tell your friends about Better by Great Place to Work, which can be found wherever you download your favorite podcasts.